Well, we come today to the end of chapter 13, where it records the actual route that the people of God initially took upon departing from the land of Egypt. And in this book, which reveals God in a way unlike any other book in the Old Testament does, we see God revealing himself, who he is and how he operates and how we are to relate to him. We see it presented very clearly throughout this book. Chapters 1 through 12 recount in broad stroke how God came to his people and fought for them as a great man of war to liberate his people from Egypt, to break the bonds of slavery and start winning the battle for their hearts. Now, we're now we're beginning a second section of the book. Chapters 13 through 18 are a story of how God goes with his people. It's the two-month journey to Sinai. So chapter 13, their departure, through the end of chapter 18, which sees them arriving at the base of Mount Sinai, that's a two-month journey. And during this time, we're going to see how God is with his people as they are making their way across the wilderness. Making their way. The Christian life is a life of making our way across the wilderness. It's been described as a pilgrimage. A journey from a starting point to a desired destination. I think you see this most vividly in that great, that master of all Christian classics, Pilgrim's Progress, where the life of faith is portrayed as a journey from a starting point, the city of destruction, to the ending point, the celestial city. And every step along the way, there are places where he stops and he finds nourishment and refreshment for his soul, but then there are also troubles and trials along the way. God had promised repeatedly to take them out of Egypt and take them to the land that he had sworn to give to their fathers, namely the promised land. That's why it's so named. And scripture reveals time and again in the New Testament that the promised land, the land of Canaan, is itself a symbol for the heavenly city which we long for, for the heavenly rest that will be ours once we have entered into the new life at the end of the age. And the journey from here to there can sometimes seem painfully long, painfully slow. Hear the words of that beloved Psalm 23 which itself describes the journey. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
in this psalm, you see David writing several hundred years after the Exodus event, writing this, this psalm that is the gold standard expression of trust in the Lord to be with him in the midst of every circumstance. This psalm, an expression of that trust, is based upon the realities that we see manifest in this passage right here. And some of our questions about the journey, why is it so hard? Why is it so plodding? What in the world is God doing? Here, these issues are addressed. In verse 17, it says that when God let them go, or when Pharaoh let them go, God did not lead them straight away to the land of Canaan. There was a direct route from Egypt to the land of Canaan, called in Latin the Via Maris, the way of the sea. If you, if you Google the ancient trading routes of the ancient Near East, it was a coastal highway that ran from, from Egypt all the way up to modern-day Syria. Direct route, if they'd stayed on the highway, walking, it was probably a two-week walk, and they would have been in the land of Canaan. Direct route, there they go. God had promised to give them the land. So God, why are we not going the highway? I love a scenic country drive as much as anybody. But when I'm in a hurry, I want the interstate. And I'm guessing you do as well. This passage calls for us, in the midst of our frustration and disappointment and pain, of how long and hard the road is. It trusts us, it calls us to do three things. First, it calls us to trust in his wisdom. Second, to rest in his promises. And third, to journey in the awareness of his presence. Trusting in his wisdom is not easy when we know in our mind that there's a better, faster, more efficient way. You think they were ignorant of this coastal highway? No, there's no way they were. It was a major thoroughfare. But yet God, in his mercy, knew that it was a militarized zone. The Philistines, the land who, whose they would have to encounter just as soon as they got past the border of Egypt, was bristling with arms. The Philistines were a tough people. And of course they were. They were proto-Europeans. They were a tough people, so much so that Joshua himself couldn't conquer them. So much so that David couldn't conquer them. In the reign of Ramses III, which takes place sometime in the Middle Kings era, they actually invade Egypt. They're so tough. It's not until Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty empire that they are subdued. So they are a tough opponent. But first, before you get there, they've got to get through multiple Egyptian garrisons that are along the way. What a formidable route. And God knows they're not ready. Wait a minute, Ben. God's fixing to go fight for them. God's fixing to go, you know, march ahead of them and do all these amazing things in the land of Canaan. Why not now? 
Why doesn't God, you know, an Egyptian garrison? God can just, you know, blow and they're, and they're in the sea. What? Well, I do think that one of the things we need to bear in mind is that uh, people give the Bible a bad name for the genocide that it calls for uh, in Joshua. Um, God was not releasing people on a killing spree. God's command to the people of Israel was not go kill the unbelievers. There's no command in Scripture to hunt down infidels wherever they may be found. Not every people group was subject to the judgment of God. It was a very particular people that were subject to that. And it was not the Philistines. So God was not going to wipe them out for His people's sake. But second of all, God wants His people to follow by faith. And He's not done teaching them about who they are and who He is. So they aren't ready militarily to handle such a tough opponent. In fact, he starts them off with a small opponent, and they work their way up to the big ones. In his mercy, God understands that oftentimes we need to crawl before we walk, and we need to walk before we run. In the military, that's the official training program, the crawl-walk-run training method. So many times, God takes his people and sets before them challenges that push them but don't overwhelm them so we can learn to trust not in ourselves but more and more in him. And theologically, they were not ready. They were still, as we will see next chapter, heartily Egyptian on the inside. They were not ready to inherit the promised land. So in a nutshell, why do we moan and groan when God's giving us of our promised land takes so long because we're not ready for it. We still struggle with the power and grip of sin in our lives, do we not? And God, as we are going through life, and he has us in the wilderness, in this school of Christ, the Holy Spirit is frictioning us, smoothing us off, getting us ready, making us fit for heaven. Our troubles, our trials, our tribulations, they're all aimed towards maximizing our enjoyment of God by minimizing our appreciation for the satisfying nature of the things of this world. Because by default, we, like the Egyptians, put our trust in the things around us, the things that we've come up with, the things that our culture has taught us will give us security and significance. And God wants to strip that all away. He wants you to rest in Him fully satisfied. But in so doing, He must teach us that our reliance on those things is vanity. So we must trust in His wisdom. The things that He spares us from are the things that we are not ready for. Have you ever thought when you're going through a trial about what it might be that God has spared you from? When we go through a hard time, our default is to boo-hoo and moan, why me? Just yesterday, that was my story. I was on my knees in the bathroom, not having a good time. Why me? What did I do? Lord, I got to preach tomorrow. 
Instead, how about thinking, you know what? Maybe this trial is just a learning opportunity and God has saved me from something even worse. God's going to give them a trial. They're about to have a major scare when they're backed up against the sea and the Egyptian army is bearing down. I'm sure that was a, a, a scary moment for them. But imagine the wrath of, a, of, of the Philistines and Egyptians combined coming down on them. It would have been even worse. Trust in his wisdom. Your circumstances are not there for your judgment, your destruction, your punishment. They're there to teach you to relax. Relax. And rest in God's good providence. And that leads us to the second thing this passage reminds us of. The need to rest in those promises. Because there are times in life when it looks like God is doing something crazy. It looks like God has just forgotten us. There are times when it is so difficult and it's so confusing that surely God is, is, is taking care of someone else. He can't be possibly taking care of me. The route they take, he literally doubles them back. So they're just wandering in the desert from a human perspective. And he ultimately leads them to a point where strategically it's, it's, it was suicide. What in the world? But verse 19, the center of this passage, is the call to rest. They take up Joseph's bones or his mummified corpse with them. This harkens back to the last couple verses of the book of Genesis. Joseph, that young man who had been thrust into Egypt through the cruelty and malice of his brothers, subjected to the imprisonment of a dungeon because of the sly deception of his master's wife, had come to call Egypt his place of sojournment. And as he approaches the end of his life, the people of God are around him, and he says, I'm about to die. But God will surely visit you and bring you up out of here to the land that he swore to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when you go, take my bones with you. And the last words of Genesis are, he died, they embalm him, and place him in a coffin in Egypt. End of Genesis. He died resting in God's promise. He died not ever seeing with his own eyes the realization of the promise to give the land, but he was certain that it would come to be. And so he gave a hopeful, joyous command concerning his remains. I don't want to be forever identified with Egypt. I want, when you guys finally get out of here, you to take my body and put it in the resting place of my fathers so I will be forever identified with the promised land. Even though Egypt had been mighty good to him, nonetheless, this is not my home. 
And he rested in God's promise. And so as the people are taking out this coffin, they would have been reminded of Joseph. They would have been reminded of Joseph's faith and his confidence that that this day Joseph had known would come. And lo and behold, here we are. The book of Hebrews recounts on that great hall of faith all the saints of old who received the promise but didn't receive the goods. And they all went to their deaths trusting and hoping in something they did not tangibly receive. And so sometimes God has has us wandering around in the desert or that's what it feels like. Rest in His promise. He has promised us a great reward. He has promised us that he will come again. He has promised us his presence. In the midst of your frustration, your heartache, remember that and rest. Third, we are called to journey in his presence. Verses 20 through 22 record the Lord going out before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So whether it was daylight or nighttime, they could see and they could travel. So the idea here is that at least for these first several weeks, it's, it's not a camping trip. They, they are on the move. And they're marching almost nonstop. And God is with them. Now many people... We'll preach this, just as I'm going to, and say this is a reminder of God's presence with us. And what they want to say is, yeah, well, you know, we don't have a pillar of fire directing our steps. You know, it would be a whole lot easier to follow God if there was a, a fire directing my every step. God didn't do that for me. There are people who act as if the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is actually a second-tier gift compared to a cloud. Now, I'm going to say something that uh, may, may startle your understanding of what this cloud is. Because um, we, most of us, have seen the Ten Commandments. And so what we have in our mind is uh, Cecil uh, de la Mille's uh, big old animated fiery tornado. You ever seen a tornado with your own eyes? It's unmistakable and it's terrifying. Can you imagine one made of fire? Wow. That'd be horrifying. Certainly not something that you wouldn't ignore. This cloud, no one seems to pay it any mind. Have you ever noticed that? Even in just a few verses, when when they're up against the sea, the people don't say, hey, the Lord, this, this thing we're following has led us here. It's you, Moses, have led us here. And the Egyptian army, 
It says the cloud comes between them and it somehow separates them, but they're not intimidated by it at all. Remember, the Egyptians were so quick to catch on that God's finger was involved that as soon as there were gnats involved, they said this is the finger of God. And, in the, and as soon as their wheels start sticking in mud, a completely natural occurrence, they recognize that God is fighting for them. But yet we're expected to believe that this imposing cloud with fire is there and they're not like terrified. It doesn't phase them a bit. They don't even think about it. No, I believe there was a cloud, but it was probably much more subdued than our imaginations lead us on to believe. My guess is that it was something that could have been mistaken for a storm cloud ever present. Something that by faith you had to understand was God in the midst leading the people. But if you're just a carnal-minded person, you may have just mistaken it for a storm cloud. Because the people themselves were not impressed. Now, we have come to Mount Zion, the New Testament says. We have come to the heavenly city. We have come to the angels in festal gathering. We have come to the assembly of the firstborn. We have come to Jesus himself. And Jesus in John 16 has told us that his departure from us was a good thing. That if he didn't go, the Spirit couldn't come. Have you thought about that for a minute? That the Spirit, the one who we are told fills us and seals us, that his presence is better for us according to Jesus than Jesus' own presence beside us? The Spirit within you is more significant than Christ beside you. And this same spirit, much like the storm cloud, is a sign of God's presence. And there may be some times when you're tempted to think, oh, God's not really with me. But by faith, you were able to see it for what it is. The presence of God with you to guide your every step. Which is why David, writing 400 or so years later, when there's no more clouds and fire, he's still able to say, the Lord is with me and he leads me. He leads my every step through the valley of the shadow of death. Have you seen some of the valleys and wadis in the Middle East? They are these terribly steep and rocky, craggy crevices in the earth. Not these big, lush Shenandoah valleys, okay? They're horrible places to try to navigate. And God is with you, and he's with me, directing our every step according to his good plan to teach us what we need to know so that when we finally get to our destination, we are ready to savor it forever. So on those days, when you look at your spouse and you think, oh man, another day. Or when you have your business and it seems like nothing is working out. Like everything, whether it's the economy or the regulations or the whatever, is just stacked against you. And you just want to pull your hair out. Why does it have to be so hard? Trying to get your kids to put on their clothes for school or church and you just want to just throw them out the window. Life is hard. 
And the Christian walk in it compounds the effect. Know that he is with you, guiding your every step. And so what this means for us then when we come to those challenges that ultimately are humanly insurmountable, it means that is the challenge for which we have been preparing for God to showcase his glory in and through us as we endure it, trusting in the promises. Because it has been appointed unto man once to die. Eventually we will come to that river's edge. And there's no backtracking. There's no going sideways around it. We must cross it. But by then, by God's grace, you will cling in faith to the one who saved you. And you will bear up under that adversity, entering your rest, And oh, what a great day that will be. So brothers and sisters, this journey is long. Some of you may be close to your reward. Others of you may still have miles and miles and miles to go. Walk every step trusting in his wisdom. He knows what he's doing. Rest in his promises because he has given us certain ones. And journey knowing that his presence is with you. Even when it doesn't feel like it, it is. And if you look around with eyes of faith, you will see his gracious goodness in every step. And brothers and sisters, never, ever, ever forget that he who began the good work of redemption will complete it. There is not a soul for whom Jesus died that will not be presented perfect to the Father. Let's pray. 